0: and welcome to the Grassroots Coachcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave. And I'm Ben. We're delighted you've joined us for our premiere episode, episode one. And today we're gonna talk to you about why we've decided to create this podcast, how we got involved in grassroots coaching, and also how you could get involved. So, Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, why we've decided to create this podcast?
1: Well, for, for me, I think it's, uh, I'm kind of new to the coaching game, and I think we, we both are. Uh, but it's something that I'm really invested in and really enjoying. And for me, I just want to learn as much as I can from other people, I guess. Um, I've got my own thoughts and ways that I want my team to play, and I've got an under-10s boys team. Um, and at the same time as keeping it simple, you know, playing good football, um, teaching them good habits. There's also things in terms of how to manage the boys at an individual level, um, not just on the football side, but just dealing with different personalities and the way they interact with each other, the way they interact with me, um, the way they interact on the pitch together, and. I don't have all the answers. I just want to learn as much as I can from other people. And the, the more we can kind of progress this and learn from each other, because um, obviously you've got a girls team of a similar age and just the sort of different dynamics, I guess, from a girls team and a boys team, how we deal with them um, from the point of view that they're different sexes. And, you know, I watch girls football. My daughter plays for an under-11s team. And it's interesting watching how they play because I I think they they play slightly differently to the boys team. It's a bit less frantic, Mm -hmm. it's a bit more thoughtful and it's just really just taking as much from other people and other views and that kind of thing really to try and help my own coaching Um, and just getting the best out of the boys really and just getting the most out of being a coach really. I guess it's probably a similar thing for you i would think
0: yeah so i think you're you're a little bit further on the journey than i am i started really this uh in this last year so i've always had a an interest in the coaching side but the idea of coaching and and uh, dare i say controlling uh, a, a big group of boys or girls uh slightly terrified me a little bit and then uh uh It was basically the coach from uh from my daughter's team who uh who just reached out in the in the summer and just said why why don't you help out because when you know the opportunity was there to to kind of help out a bit you know um setting cones up and whatever quite happy to help out there so yeah he he probably provided that catalyst. And also what prepped me a little bit was uh, hearing some of your stories about uh, uh, the good and the bad of coaching the various teams and uh, uh, definitely the highs and the lows. And, and so that intrigued me a little bit to get involved as well.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of got involved in a similar way because my lad st- I started at Little League, really. My lad played. I took him down when he was about five. He'd never shown an interest in football at all and. He was a bit of a, I wouldn't say natural, but he he used to love flying into tackles and all this kind of stuff, and he actually got player of the year in his first year, which was a bit of a surprise. After that, he carried on playing. And then I think in his third year, I think his manager left, and everyone was like, "Oh, Ben, why don't you do it? Why don't you do it?" And I thought, "Well, oh, yeah, I quite I quite fancy that." And uh, it was only a little league on a Sunday kind of setup, but. I think I got the bug straight away. It's kind of, I found it quite addictive. And it's, you've, you, I, I don't know, I, I love that. And it sounds a bit daft, but even for a Sunday under nine, eights, nines as it was then, you get those, you know, match day butterflies and you're thinking all week about the game. And that sounds daft because it's a bunch of eight, nine-year-olds, but you're kind of thinking, oh, right, how am I going to get them to play? What should I get them to do? How should they do this? How should they do that? And I just, I, felt I got completely hooked and I did that for a couple of years. And then um, we were kind of looking for getting Elijah, my lad, out of Little League and because he'd kind of outgrown it a bit. Same as a few of the other members of the team. And I'm trying to find him a my club. And then just by coincidence, I've got a friend who has got an under-8s team at our local club, Carl Shorten Athletic. And he me up one day and said oh, they're looking for another under-10s coach. You know, I've mentioned your name.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So I phoned the owner straight away and uh, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're looking for under-10s managers. Um, So I was like, oh, great, you know. And he said, you know, what's your experience, this, that, and the other. And I said, well, I haven't got any coaching badges. I'm very keen. And he said, you know, we'll pay for you to do your badges. Um, He said, have you got any players? I said, yeah, I've got probably five, six that I could bring who I think are ready to go and play in in a Sunday league. Um, which is a better standard, um, and it kind of went from there, really, so I was kind of attracted to the the prospects of putting my own team together rather than having i think at little league it's a case of if you're interested, you get a place in a team, and obviously you 've got different mm-hmm. teams, and that got frustrating after a while, people turning up because they were probably pushed into it and not because they wanted to be there, but yeah, yeah. the idea of putting your own team together. Picking players that I wanted was really attractive, and it's kind of gone from there, really. Yeah, I don't know. what You know, your setup is a similar kind of club bill, I guess. But it's probably a similar thing.
0: Yeah, I think from what we've what we've spoken about, I, I, the the facilities at, at the the sort of grassroots club that I'm at, it, compared to when I was a kid, are absolutely out of this world but it, it the club is set up around kind of an inclusive culture yeah, yeah. so if you got people sort of not really turning up um then then they wouldn't necessarily get booted off the team or anything but I, I don't think we really we're quite lucky at the moment i mean we we do try and make the games the the training sessions and everything fun so we've we've got quite a high turnout um when when the games come along at least um so yeah it it probably we're a little bit further down the curve maybe yeah but i think one of one of the other things uh that that's intrigued me for years is that uh you know during the the in the professional games so you have the the huge kind of fifa tournaments uh like the world cup and the european championships and what have you and and when when england invariably crash out uh either expectedly or unexpectedly then you know you listen to the radio and it's always talking about well you know the major problem is the grassroots game yeah and you know so so all these highly paid uh professionals who yeah you know at that level you're talking about such fine margins as well but <laughs> you know the biggest problem is that at the grassroots level um Coaches are just shouting at players, and you've got parents on the sidelines shouting at players, and and that's that's why the England team ultimately failed. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, so it's always intriguing me how to make that leap in logic, um, because a lot of those those top England players they're in the academy systems from from a very early age anyway, but part of me you know that that that's intrigued me for years and part of me just wanted to see it more up close and see well yeah. is is it the case do you do you always have um you know parents at the sidelines bellowing abuse out at the players and and treating it as if it's you know a, a man united versus liverpool uh, FA cup final or something yeah so, so there's that intrigue for me as well to get to get involved, and I'm glad to say, you know, it, in the in the league I'm in, it's it's nothing like that. But uh, it's a World Cup year, so um, yeah. That, but- so come come August, we'll see if we we have the same kind of grassroots problems talk on the radio stations again.
1: Yeah, I mean that's an interesting point actually in terms of and something that we can visit later on I think in a separate podcast possibly, but. Um, the competitive football at this age should it be competitive, should it not be? what's the best way to develop players and I think interestingly, the little league team I managed that was competitive and they published league results um which is quite quite rare. You don't tend to get teams at eight, nine, ten with league results published. it's all you know kind of friendly games and development games and stuff, and the team I manage now all that we have. Um, they 're called I mean they 're called league games, but the results aren 't published so mm-hmm. only only the league organizers see the results so it 's kind of non competitive I suppose in that sense um and i 've noticed more doing this that it, it, at a club you know an organized club on a sun at a sunday level the 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 spectators are they tend to be a lot better behaved and i don 't know if that 's because. You know, there's not a league table and it's not all tribal and competitive. And I found that little league level with the league tables and everything published, it some of the stuff that happened on the touchline is pretty incredible. Eight, nine, ten year olds to see, you know, parents arguing and seeing, you know, punches thrown. Unbelievably, really? Unbelievably, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you, and it's... So I think also it's a bit it's a it's not as well organised at a little league level. You're just all down a park playing on five or six pitches, and you know there's not. I mean we have we have marshals at every game. Um, you know you're playing in, within a club environment, so you know there's a lot of people who won't tolerate any of that sort of stuff within the club who are mm-hmm. they've got match days. But yeah. but I've often thought is that because you know, there's a, it's a it's a league format and people want to win the league that desperately or is it just because you're you're paying a lot more money to be part of the club set up and I don't know maybe it's a different you attract different types of parents I don't know it's just an interesting thing to think about in terms yeah. of grassroots and how you nurture players and you know should they be playing competitively at that age yeah mm-hmm. I don't know Um it's an interesting debate I think but
0: yeah, so we should definitely touch on that a little bit more, like you say, in another podcast, I think. Um, so, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, how we know each other? Because yeah. I, I, it's been quite a few years now, and I was actually racking my brains trying to think. It must <laughs> be. How many years? It, well, it must like- be. Well, it's probably a more. More Maybe, decades than we'd like. I
1: hope, um, I think, yeah, over 20 years. Because when, when did we leave? We left, well, we met at university, didn't we? And, that's right, yeah. Um, well, we left in 98. Wow, 20 years ago. So it must be 21, 22 years, I would think. Yeah. Gary. Old man radio. Yeah. Um, but, as yeah, we've had a bit of a bond over love of Liverpool, I guess, is probably one of the main things that sort of yeah. kept, us in, kept us in touch because we don't live that near to each other. But I guess being big Liverpool fans, it's always good to sort of, you know, constantly message each other, vent your spleen when you're annoyed and <laughs> then, then trying to front read it. messages to each other when we're scoring goals and stuff. But
0: <laughs> So I, I was trying to think and I, I genuinely couldn't remember. Because I mean for, for some some people who are listening they might not even kind of remember um, a time before facebook <laughs> Yeah. You know, so so twenty years ago there was an internet, um, but uh, you know things like facebook weren't weren 't really around then no I, I was trying to remember how how do we get back in contact?
1: I seem to remember vaguely that you you got my number from somewhere and you you sent me a text or something this is, I went. I can't remember how you got my number, but I I remember asking you and you you told me, but I can't for the life of me remember where you got it from. You must have seen a mutual uni friend somewhere or something, possibly. That's the only thing I can think of.
0: Yeah. I remember remember out of
1: the blue you messaged me and it was kind of like we hadn't spoken for a couple of years. You know, I remember me from uni sort of thing and it
0: went from there, I think. It, It must have been match related, mustn't it? Yeah, it yeah, must yeah. have been something to do. I think, with you, I think you did football. start it right
1: like, with a Liverpool reference, um, you know, like you still support Liverpool, so I don't know something like that, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah you know, like, yeah. It was. I'm pretty sure that was
0: how it was. Interesting, because now you just you just connect on Facebook, and yeah. then uh, you know you, you you don't lose touch with anyone. But um... yeah, for the younger for
1: those younger listeners, yeah, you, you used to have to try and find somebody's phone number. Off the and actually phone them. But
0: you couldn't use social media. <laughs> well, there, there was text messaging. By the sounds of yeah, it, which so is uh, as advanced as it got back then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we didn't have to use Ravens or, or yeah. anything like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting trying to explain this one to the kids. You know, what, what do you mean? No Facebook, no. But it's that common, no it's that common internet. Yeah, it's that common, <laughs> and It's
1: football, and you you can bond with somebody very easily over football, and then. Uh, we've got, we've been to gigs and we will get to a gig soon and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's all good. It's all it all just goes from there. And we've actually got more in common than we probably first thought. And uh, there you go.
0: And I'm trying to think now. So we left uni in '98. Yeah. It, it was two or three years after. Um, yeah. Uh, that would have been around about that treble season, would wouldn't it? So.
1: Yeah, we probably weren't even in contact then. I wouldn't have thought. I can't. I can't remember that far back.
0: Yeah, I, I think it might have been after that. So uh, even when
1: we won the Champions League, possibly not even then. Maybe I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we were. Can't check my phone yeah. to go that far back.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure, but uh, but even even in the last twenty years, we've probably seen each other what um, four. Yeah, I was going to say a handful of of times. Yeah, um, but probably email and communicate uh, at least on a weekly basis and then usually transfer window uh, um, well yeah, I usually try and stop myself yeah. <laughs> writing too much you know uh, oh I've just seen someone someone else linked yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. when did when do you remember actually getting into into football in fact I remember it Probably a similar time to you. I
1: remember very. I think the first football match I ever watched was Everton against Man United in the eighty-five Cup Final at my grands. Mm-hmm. And it was that one where Kevin Moran got sent off, and I think he was the first person to ever get sent off in a Cup Final. Yeah. Then Norman Whiteside scored that brilliant curler in injury extra time. United mm-hmm. won it. Big Ron was in charge, and that was the first game I watched, and it was the first time I'd ever actually got interested in football. And then, I also watched probably not the greatest game to watch, but I watched the the Juventus High Disaster Cup Final, mm-hmm. Cup Final, um, and that's that. Weirdly, when I, mean, I was too young to appreciate everything that happened around that and all the horrible tragedy, but that was the first time I'd really, for some reason, I, I started supporting Liverpool after that game, and it wasn't even because they were in the final, because I, I had no concept about what that game was or meant, because I was too young, but. I sort of latched on to Kenny Dalglish for some reason. I really liked him. Hmm. I don't know what, I can't even remember why that was. Maybe it was just the way he, he looked or something. I don't, I don't know. But <laughs> After that, I found out, then I realised he played for Liverpool and I just started supporting them from there. I only yeah, found but... that later, my gran was actually a Scouser. I didn't realise that until after she died, actually. So it's kind of in the yeah, blood, right. loosely, which I do tell people when they say, well, you're from Coventry. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> But yes, it was the 85-86 season when we won the double, so what a great introduction into football. And, you yeah. think, and of course, you get lulled into a, oh, you're always going to win trophies and all that, and sadly it's not, not like that, as we well know. But um, it's, I think we've discussed before, it's a similar time for you, wasn't it? 85-86? Yeah,
0: so, so it, was a, uh, it was a light switch for me because I'd, I'd been, a, um, by default, a Liverpool fan my whole life. Um my family had all supported Liverpool, and I remember um you know playing football a little bit as a kid i i, I remember having a i I knew the name kinda of Ian rush and I knew it number nine so i got my my dad to put you know on my little Hitachi kit uh a, 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 with black tape you know a number nine on the back it <laughs> looking back now you know you'd never see kids walking around the street like that but uh, that's where it was but I never had a massive interest um, in it and then I, I think I was I think I was being minded at, at my nan's or something and the uh, so no I just had the free reign of the TV and the, and the FA Cup final was on so Liverpool uh, against Everton and so first half Uh, it was 1-0, Lineker scored and something switched inside me which I I just thought more than anything in the world right now I want us to beat Everton (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why That never changes Um, No (laughs) Well I think (coughs) you know again at the time this is the mid-80s So, and, and the particular catchment area that I was in it was Liverpool, Everton, and we had literally a handful of very, very quiet Man United supporters. It, it goes to show how times change. Yeah. but you know, so so a lot of uh, a lot of your friends and stuff at school were either Liverpool or Everton, and uh, you know, for whatever reason, I just really wanted to beat them. I had no idea, really. I couldn't look and analyse the game or whatever, but I just knew that in you know, to my core. We had to beat them, and so uh, so when you know we scored and uh, the equaliser, and then I think Craig Johnson got the uh, got the second in there, and, yeah. and then Rush the third. I, I, it was just absolutely brilliant, and and I think from that point um, I became a massive supporter. But then it was probably a few a few more years um, before I really got interested in in playing the game and watching the game and and again two distinct times in my life you know it wasn't suddenly i loved watching it and playing it they both happened uh, you know a couple of years after and uh in terms of in terms of watching the game um it was probably more uh, early early 90s which again considering the the period of dominance that had gone on before it's just about the worst time to uh, become really uh, enthusiastic about about Liverpool Football Club <laughs> just as they went on that spiral downwards you know and uh, have never quite got back up there no absolutely it's, yeah, it's um, weird,
1: weird isn't it? it's a similar thing with the coach and the kids once you get hooked you just can't take
0: it really it's just yeah. the way it is so I think what we'll do is move on to the next section, which is really uh, the theme of this this opening episode, which is to talk about how we got involved in grassroots coaching, and also how other people could get involved. Okay, so, We've spoke about you and I just ended up getting dragged into it or falling into it, really, but from that initial point of someone saying, you know, couldn't you uh, help out with coaching or, or coach this, this team, what what were the next steps for you?
1: Really, for, this, for the little league, it was a bit easier because the team was already there and we've got a couple... You do, you couldn't choose your players in you know, art, the setup I was involved in, you've got given players, um, which which is fine, but then that's obviously where you like I said before, you get the sort of different abilities, mm-hmm. and there's absolutely nothing wrong with kids wanting to come and just have a a kick about and fun because that's what it should be. That's what should happen. Um, but I think there's you start to see the separation with kids who take it a lot more seriously and have probably got a bit more ability and those, and they get frustrated. So it's really, um prompted the desire to move into a club and then from the club perspective, um for me, because I had five or six players already available that I spoke to and said, look, I'm getting involved with this local club, uh, a new team, do you want to come and play? And luckily the the feedback was really positive. And from there it was a case of scouting, keeping my eye out. So, so you were tapping um, these young players up? Uh, I did actually tap <laughs> <laughs> Not tap him up, but there was we needed a goalkeeper, and um, I knew of a goalkeeper who I played. We played against in our little league. Quite uh, a good keeper, and I thought oh, I quite I quite like him. Uh, one of the team, one of the team actually, is friends with him. But I thought he was already signed up for little league. So I kind of out of desperation, I said, "Oh, you know, would this lad want to do it?" And luckily, we got positive feedback, um, and he came down for a trial game, and he really enjoyed it, and he knew a few of the lads already, and. Uh, So that was lucky because finding a goalkeeper I found is the hardest thing.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so found the goalkeeper, but then I probably had three or four spaces to fill. So we had trials at the club, Um, probably about 50 kids turned up, a mixture of kids already signed and kids who weren't signed. So it was a case of trying to filter out who was actually signed, because I didn't know anybody. Um, And then I asked about a couple of players and it turned out they were already signed. So that wasn't very successful, but they arranged a, um, a trial game. Uh, my sort of six or seven that I had ready and a few trial players who weren't signed so I had a squad of about 13 for this one game and we played our first probably our best under 10 team and they absolutely hammered us but it gave me a chance to look at probably four, five, six players that weren't signed and almost they're on trial I guess and it was a case of me knowing what I needed you know I needed a defender midfielder, striker for example and just filtering out from what was there, um, and luckily there were two or three that were actually pretty good that I quite like the look of. So I asked them; they were happy to sign. And I think I had one space left. I needed a defender and uh, that captain. He was recommended by another under tens manager. Said, "Look, this lad—he's—he's he's a good player. He's not been signed up, but I recommend that you, um, yeah, like what I saw, so sign him up." So really, it's a mixture of had half the team ready and getting the rest from trials or recommendations because there wasn't a lot of time to get the team signed up and I was relying on the other people who were more qualified than me and I trust their judgement and luckily they came up trumps and steering me in the right direction, which was great. And We'll be starting trials again probably March, April time, so quite early. Um, I think a lot of teams in our area do put trials on very early, so I'll be looking for, again, we're going up to nine aside next year, so it's a case of probably three or four more players, um, which is a nice position to be in because assuming my whole team want to come up, which I think most of them do, it's just trying to get those two or three extra real quality players that will make a difference. Um, So I don't know how how many, I mean, what's the sort of, I I guess the girls game's different and, you know, my daughter's been to a few trials and you get a good number now. I think it's really popular. I think the women, England women's teams help with that. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know if you've got a, if you've got a waiting list or if you you just got a core small squad that you kind of have because they're all interested or have you got a bigger pool of players? How does it work from your side?
0: Well, so <laughs> the, the first thing is my jaw nearly dropped when you when you said you had fifty players turning up for for trials. I, I guess yeah, that's that's it, not all unsigned. That's a lot of they mix it with a lot of players who are already signed, so it's not.
1: Fifty kids who've got no club. They've, you know, a lot of them are already at the club, but they just want to. They like mixing in the trialists with the signed-up players, just to
0: see, right, just okay. to see how they
1: do, because it's a good barometer. Which I think is quite a good thing to do. So, yeah, rather than just fifty kids who could all be at a similar level, and you don't, you can't really pick anybody out. But if you put them against established players who you know are going You've to be established to measure against, can, them, oh, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, exactly, absolutely. Exactly. So, I, I'll. I want to talk a little bit in a bit about some of the uh, the minimum criteria you uh, you need to get involved and and help out there. But with with our particular team, um, we started off. Well, actually, so my my daughter showed an interest in in playing football. So I started looking around at, at local sides and. It just so happened that I, I don't think it was exactly at the right time, but it was within like a couple of months. Um, there was a chap who was just looking to start up. So, so there's already an established club in the in the village where where I am, but they had no girls' team. Yeah. And this this chap, the coach, he wanted to. Um, he want his, He coached uh, his daughter, but his daughter was all grown up. And he had got the bug for it and, and wanted to start off uh start a brand new team. Yeah. And so he'd he'd kinda of come into our club and proposed that that they start up a team and then started, you know, sending out uh social media uh adverts and stuff, just people who want want to get involved. But for the first for the first few months I I remember there was there was literally three girls. <laughs> and so you know they'd turn up uh, and and so week in week out you know he he'd come down and he'd he'd coach the girls and work with them just on on the very basics you know so uh controlling the ball running with the ball um and just just basic technique and um he ended up he, he pulled a bit of a master stroke so he he brought down uh, one of the one of the players from the Watford Ladies side to the <laughs> local school and um who also had a had a cute little pug apparently <laughs> and then at tell. the next training session th- there was literally like nearly 20 girls there right <laughs> um all just had a, a you know I think it's not just um suddenly they they became interested in football. It's probably one of those things where again it's an educational thing for parents they they probably don't even think there's a there's a local girl side out there um and so anyway they i mean that numbers whittle down i i think the from that same group um we have a squad of around 12 13 at the moment i mean it's 12 a side 12 a it's not rugby uh it's 7 aside at the at the under 10s level and uh so we have a, a, a squad of about 12 and we we rotate uh throughout the games but though those that core of girls you know they they turn up week in week out and um like you say it's it's not a, a case of picking the best players from trials, it's, its this is the group of players you've got to work with. Now, work with them, coach them. And what I would say to anybody who does want to get involved,
1: I think, I think a lot of people find, a lot of, well, I get the impression that a lot of people aren't willing to, that's probably not the right way of putting it, but some people don't want to give it their time because lives are busy and everything else to, to be a manager. And I think, more often than not, if you express an interest and we had I'd actually discussed it with another club when I was trying to find my daughter a team and they actually said are you interested in coaching and I did initially explore getting involved with that particular club maybe with a girls team actually as well Mm -hmm. and it didn't it didn't come to anything uh, in the end because she didn't she didn't go to that club but um, clubs are always on the lookout for people who want to give up their time and be a manager and coach Um, and I've I've seen I've had quite a bit of positive feedback when I've dis- I've discussed it with different a couple of different clubs and this that and the other. So, I think there's always there's always vacancies and always possibilities for new teams at clubs. Um, I think from what I've seen and a lot of the teams we play against in our Surrey Youth League have got three, four, five teams at different levels because obviously there's a wide pool of talent and there's a wide pool of people who want to get involved. So I think there's always a possibility. So it's always worth contacting your local club or your little league if you want to start that way um, and there's always there's always the opportunity to get involved I would say so it's definitely worth pursuing if, you, yeah. if it does interest you just ask the question because you know I reckon I think more often than not you'll get a positive response and you can, you can go as far as you want to go with it you can do your badges not do your badges just do it at a little league
0: level um, but yeah there is that there's definitely possibilities so yep yeah, and I think one of the um, so one of the things that surprised me a little bit so um, from that initial okay I'll I'll help out and and honestly I was quite happy just putting the cones out um, (laughs) just helping put the nets up and and wheel the goals out and what have you Um, but before you can actually get involved you have to go through a couple of mandatory courses don't you yeah um you go through the uh safeguarding for kids and the emergency first aid and i think one of the things i should point out so we're obviously talking about the the english fa system yeah i think one of the interesting things would be um at, at some point in the future to look at look outside that as well and see you know I know in the u s they seem to have a very uh healthy coaching system there and uh it'd be interesting in a few years if that if that bears fruit because they seem to be doing all the right things but maybe uh if we could get someone on to to talk to us a bit about you know what what the qualifications are and and minimum criteria to get involved in yeah, in there absolutely, are.
1: absolutely. You're right. so the sorry you're just yeah you're right i think there's you have got to be qualified to do it. Um, we can discuss it in future episodes, but we're both signed up. To, we're about to start our Level 1 FA courses in a few weeks, which will be really enlightening and really interesting. But, um, yeah, you have to have all your checks done, all that kind of thing. So it's, it's quite a serious thing. It's only when you start having to do all those things you think, well, oh, it's quite a big deal. And that's where the responsibility of you trying to nurture these kids Um, And having that, I don't know, the pressure of parents watching training sessions and games and you're thinking, well, you know, this is quite a big deal. We've got to try, I've got to try and do this right, which is, again, what hopefully this podcast will bring in the future, um, sharing of ideas and different things we can try, different ways of doing things. So,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but uh, I I think where where things started to get quite real was, um, uh, doing that emergency first aid course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, cause uh, again, as the name suggests, so you, you go there, you go to a, an official FA, uh, center or whatever, and, it, and it's good cause you get to mix with some of the other coaches as well as some people who've been doing it for years, some people who are, who are starting out as well. Um, but this is so. This is not uh, around sprained ankles or or um, pulled muscles or what have you. This is you know uh, life-threatening injuries. So you know talking a lot about cardiac arrest and how to perform CPR and yeah. and stuff like that. And and I suddenly thinking, crikey, you know dealing with under tens, and then that that fear <laughs> a little bit sort of hits you that. You know what? What if that does happen? Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, the pressure's going to be on you uh, to, to to pull through, to remember all your training, and uh, yeah, uh, you know, put it into action. So yeah, it's it sort of got got a bit real there. But then you sort of think, well, uh, or or I certainly thought, well, if you're not trained and you're not there, well that's not particularly going to end up in a good place either so
1: no absolutely it's a similar thing for the safeguarding children that's when it probably hit me more that i mean actually the first aid is coming up for me i haven't actually done that part yet but safeguarding children was a real massive eye opener mm-hmm. that's when it got real for me and i thought wow this is a huge responsibility that you've sort of taken on it's not just to uh, turn up on a sunday for a couple of hours and a kick about whatever it is, you know, these kids there could be anything going on. And you've also got to protect yourself as well and not leave yeah. yourself open to any situations that could leave you vulnerable, which, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. Um, and I think I would say to anybody to, if you do want to get involved, you've got to be prepared for that. Um, you've got to be willing to, you know, throw yourself into it and accept that responsibility that comes with it. Um, but you know, it's so rewarding that any kind of worries you have are just outweighed by the enjoyment of doing it really. Um, I'm sure it's the same for you. I mean, you're probably the same as me, you know you know, when you when you get involved, you probably just wanna do more than you probably did to start with, like you say, putting out the cones and stuff, but you probably can't help yourself getting involved and getting thrown yourself into it on the touchline and you know coaching the kids and all this sort of stuff. It just all becomes all-encompassing, really. That's how I found it. And it's probably the same for you, you, Dave, as well, I would think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's, you, as you go through life, you're always learning a little bit about, a little bit more about yourself, or or else, or hopefully you are, or else life would be quite boring. But um, it's taken me a little bit by surprise just how emotionally invested I have become yep, spot um, absolutely. absolutely you know we we had our first uh, penalty shootout a, f- a few weeks ago and as you mentioned before you know at, at this under tens level it's not really um, competitive as such or, yeah. or you know they don't publish the league tables and and some of the and the results you know it's it's about Developing players, you know, promoting the the enjoyment of the game, and so the rational part of my brain is is constantly reminding myself about that. But um, you know, when we were in the middle of this penalty shootout, uh, uh, it went right to the to the full five, and and we were lucky enough uh, to to pop in the winner. I, my ins- you know, my outer self was trying to. Uh, desperately trying to appear calm uh, but my inner self was <laughs> bouncing up and down you know as if as if we just won the cup final uh, you know for the world cup or something it, it was and and at the end of it you know a couple of hours after when you come down i was exhausted <laughs> and then i have to keep reminding myself you know this is uh this is an under 10s game
1: yeah no absolutely i was just saying i mean we we um we we got knocked out of the cup last week, so it is one of those games that is a competitive game, if you like. They're the only games that will be. And uh, we lost to a team two divisions below us on a a pudding of a pitch, a uh, small pitch as well, and we couldn't we couldn't re without making excuses we couldn't play our football and everything else and we were unlucky on the day, but the devastation afterwards it was uh it was quite heartbreaking, you know, you've got kids walking off crying and You feel kind of responsible for it, Um, but you know you've got to get over that. It's only a game. You've got to tell them, and of course they they forget about it ten minutes later. But yeah, it does kind of ruin your whole day. It ruined my whole day.
0: (laughs) Only only the day?
1: Uh, A few days after as well. (laughs) I I kept thinking about it all week, and it's—it sounds. I've said before, it sounds daft because you see, Premier League managers going, "Oh, I can't sleep after we've lost a game," and it ruins your whole week and. And you can kind of relate to it when you do, even at this level, coaching a team, because you feel responsible and it's like you feel like it's your fault you've lost. Because what what could I have done right? What didn't we work on in training? And it's all part of the learning process. And that's what I really enjoy about it Um, and what I get a lot out of when it doesn't go well. You then think, right, I find it easier to plan then because I think, right, we didn't do this well. We didn't do that well. So that forms the basis of your next training session. And that's so satisfying when you then put that into training, and then you see the team respond to it the next game, and they take on board what you said. And that's the biggest buzz for me um, in doing it, really. So, yeah, you do. It is an emotional roller coaster, as I kind of. Which is, if it wasn't, I probably wouldn't do it. I don't think because I don't think you wouldn't have that buzz which you get from it, and it's great. It's a fantastic thing.
0: Yeah. So I guess if we were to try and sum up, um, if someone is looking to get involved, so I think the first thing is obviously an enthusiasm to do it. Yeah. Um, I think you mentioned about just just reach out to your to your local clubs. If you've got a son or daughter um, who's there in a the club, you know, just speak to the speak to the coaches there about you know getting uh, helping out or. Um, or if they're not, you know, and you still want to get involved in, in the coaching side, then, then just speak to the to the local clubs. Yeah, just
1: Email your club, phone your club. Also, a lot of clubs will put trials on March, April, May, June time. Just take, take your son or daughter down there and, you know, just mention, just speak to the coach and say, you know, how do I get involved? And worst comes to worst, they'll point you in the right direction. They'll re- recommend you go somewhere else or they'll give you a name and, you can take it from there. There's always means to get into it, so it's important that you just ask those questions and um,
0: yeah, just, just look for the opportunities when they're there because there's always some there, I think. And I guess different clubs. I hadn't realised until you you'd mentioned before about the about the first aid because different clubs might have different entry criteria as well. Yeah. So Absolutely. we mentioned about the safeguarding. I imagine pretty much any any club. Uh, would have the safeguarding as a minimum but I think uh to coach to coach the team on my own i had to uh uh do the emergency first aid as well yeah so before before I'd done those two i i couldn't uh really really get involved and beyond that um we mentioned about the, the level one coaching badges as well. So, yeah. again, for some clubs, uh, they may have that as a, as a minimum. And uh, maybe, you know, we'll talk a bit more about the, the various coaching badges uh, yeah. in later podcasts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that, yeah I forgot to mention that before. Yeah, some clubs will, uh, the club that I'm at, you, you have to have a level one, uh, which is why I'm doing it. Um, other clubs, you, you may not have to. Um, It depends on the size of the club, really, and what your setup's like. So, um, yeah, everywhere's different, but, yeah, something to be aware of. You may have to do your level one, but it's, again, it's something to kind of embrace and enjoy, and it'll help develop you as as a coach. So, yeah, good.
0: Good stuff. Anything else before we move on to our next section? I think that's all right for now, I think. Yep. Okay. so let's move on to the next section, which is our retro review. So what we wanted to do in this section is to look at um, either a player, a particular team, maybe just a move from years gone by. Um, We'll talk a little bit about that and maybe indulge a little bit about uh, uh, the influence that that team, player or move had on the game and how you could bring that into your your own coaching session and your own uh, coaching philosophy. So today we're going to talk a little bit about um, a player called Alan Hansen which again it's going to be a generational thing so <laughs> for, uh, for Ben and I this is, a, this is a player for a certain generation this will be uh, a TV pundit and for another generation it will probably be who the hell's that. <laughs> So Ben, what, why don't you tell me a little bit about um, Alan Hansen and and what kind of player he was? We're going we're going to focus on the player as opposed to the pundit, I think. Yeah,
1: he was uh, he was an unbelievable player. He's probably he was probably one of my favourite players when I first got into football. He was at that time he was probably in the veteran stage, I would say, probably early mid thirties. But he was uh, for those who don't remember him. He was a Scottish centre-half, they called him in those days. And he was a bit, he sort of broke the mould a bit for centre-halves because you kind of think of them as being big bruisers, you know, who like getting stuck in and everything. But he was very, very cultured. He was unflappable on the ball. He was so calm on the ball. And whenever I watched him play, I always felt like, yeah, we'll we'll probably win this game. Because Alan Hansen's playing because he's just so calm. I can't even. I keep saying that word, but I can't put it into words unless you saw him play. He was very good on the ball. He used to walk the ball out of defence. Not the quickest, but very silky, almost an artist in the way he played. He just controlled the ball so well. He used the ball well. I don't think I ever used to see him panic and boot the ball out for a throw in he was just very very good he could build from the back he dribble into midfield just an all-round brilliant defender and the weird thing about him for me was i think he i can't remember how many caps he got for scotland but it was hardly any compared to the ability he had it was criminal how few caps he got but, so um,
0: so i can tell you just because i looked at it like 5 minutes before we started recording was it 30 40 <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a lot 26 oh, according to that Rock-solid, concrete source of information, Wikipedia. So, yeah, you know, it could be wrong. Must
1: be true. But yeah, that's that's astonishing that he got that many caps. It really is.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Although, you know, at the time, Scotland had a huge pool of, of really talented players. But even then, it, it does seem a bit of an anomaly that he didn't get more caps. Although although we'll get back on to uh talking about some of the great attributes he had as a player but one of the things i know he's he's received a fair bit of ribbing about was was a particular game uh Scotland against against Russia where a, a fairly simple ball gets floated up and the the two defenders basically clatter into each other and the Russian striker ends up, he, he couldn't believe his luck, and he ends up with a free run on goal and, and sure enough pops it away. I, I think it was on match <laughs> of the day where they ended up replaying it a few times to really twist the knife, and um, I'm sure that that one-off mistake didn't have too much of an influence on how many caps he got, but more to do with that pool of of Scottish players they had at the time.
1: Yeah, that's worth pointing out actually, because to the younger generation who probably have never seen Scotland do anything of note, they did used to be a very good side, um, and that's probably why they did have some good centre halves. To be fair, so he probably found it a bit harder than he would now to get into the team. But yeah, a real if if you can YouTube him or Google him or watch any clips, it's worth doing, especially if you're a budding centre-half who you know wants to know how to use the ball he was he was so good at that so yeah he's a, a quality player and that kind of that calmness that quality on the ball is something that i try and instill in my team especially the defenders you know don't panic head up look for a pass keep it simple don't just boot the, unless you have to don't boot the ball out because it's such an important especially playing seven aside you kind of need everybody to chip in and be and build attacks and be good on the ball and keep the ball. So yeah, it's um he's a good role model for that. Um and you probably feel the same way watching, you know, trying to get the girls play, keeping the ball, controlling it, passing it. He was just so good at that.
0: Absolutely. In the modern game, I, I think who would you who would you like Hansen's style to? Some someone like John Stones, maybe?
1: Yeah. Yeah, good, good example. Perfect example. John Stones, good on the ball. Probably, yeah, maybe the more physical... Fiz- I mean, uh, Alan Hansen... It's, div- it's, it's interesting because Alan Hansen, when I watched him, was in probably some of the best Liverpool teams that there ever were. So, in terms of... It's a bit like watching Manchester City now. You know, probably didn't get as put under much pressure as he would if he played for a mid-table team. So, it's probably harder for me to gauge as a actual defender how good he was but as an all-round player he was fantastic but yeah it's an interesting thing to think about but yeah I would say John Stones maybe Rio Ferdinand that kind but Ferdinand was probably a bit quicker and but yeah John Stones is a good one you know because John Stones is very very good on the ball maybe sometimes you wonder if he's the same in terms of his actual defending but he probably doesn't have a lot lots to do in most games so it's harder to say but yeah that's a good that's a good analogy
0: yeah I'm sure that stones earns quite a bit more than than Hansen did back in the day though uh, yeah I, I'm not sure it's a completely fair comparison is it because no it's not. John stones it's not. is still quite young um, yeah. whereas when we're looking back we've got the benefit of Hansen's whole career um, I'm not sure Stones is a, is at the level that yeah. Hanson was, but he's still very young and, and got his whole career ahead of him. I'm, I'm sure if you asked uh, people who watched a lot of football in the 80s, they, they'd be hard pushed to name a, a better ball-playing centre-back than, uh, than Alan Hanson.
1: Absolutely, and I think especially back then, the game probably wasn't as cultured, I suppose, as it is now. It was a bit, I don't know, my memories of it are obviously teams play good football but maybe not I think defenders defended now there's a real trend defenders have got to be good from the back and good on the ball and I think back then he he was a bit unique in that he was like that but not not a lot of other defenders were I don't remember to be honest
0: yeah so I think I mentioned earlier that I didn't get as interested in watching the game until until later in the 90s and he wasn't playing too much by then and had a few injuries which uh, limited his game time really. So I think I was more familiar with the kind of legend and, and aura around him than actually seeing him, him play in play in real time. Yeah. But what I do remember is a, a few years back after he retired is, is reading his book. And the thing that jumped right. out at me was that he actually started off as a midfielder. Which makes sense, actually. And it's funny you mentioned Rio Ferdinand earlier. I'm sure Rio Ferdinand started off as either a midfielder or a forward. I think he, I think you're right. I think he did. And so I think for whatever reason, uh, you know, someone spotted something in in their game which which really lends them to to move him further uh, further back on the on the pitch. And I, I'm sure it's it's more than just just being tall in both cases. Yeah. But I think what's what's interesting as well that when I when I played the game and and you know I still play uh, occasionally now I I really prefer to play uh, at the back so I can see all the play in front of me I can see what's going on and and that's where I'm comfortable and if I get up into midfield and 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 up front is a no go zone for me but you know if if i'm in midfield my brain just can't really comprehend you know where all the players are, are coming from and hats off to uh, to the people who who can do that yeah. but it must be a lot easier if you've if you're able to uh, to play that central midfield role it must be a little bit easier to then to then step back uh, and see all the play in front of you yeah
1: i guess you're probably right actually I used, to, I, used to play it. I used to be a right-back um, when I played. And then when I was a bit older, I played as a striker. Um, but, yeah, it's, I was probably a bit more old school. I used to just get the ball and thump it down the line. <laughs> I, did, I didn't really try and play it around too much. But I think if I played now, I would try and, try and be a bit more cultured. But I was never good enough, really. So, yeah, hopefully I'll be a better coach.
0: Yeah, I think I was... I was mostly left back in the changing rooms, as the as the <laughs> yeah. saying goes. But I do think that having your own limitations and and being aware of them and, and thinking about them does give you a uh, an appreciation of of how to approach uh, coaching as well. I I do remember that one of the pieces of advice I had. Uh, when I was probably somewhere somewhere between ten and and twelve, maybe younger than that, a long time ago now. Um, but someone actually said to me, "Well, uh, as soon as you get the ball, look to pass it, because if you don't get caught with the ball, you know you can't be the one held to account and and look pretty daft when we lose the ball." Yeah. <laughs> And that well-intentioned piece of advice uh, stayed with me for throughout my life, um, and again, it's just uh, it's embedded on my psyche. And even though um, I try and ignore that, it, it's still there. And I think when you receive advice. It can only be a, a very small piece, but then it uh, you know it does have a, a big influence on you if you're receptive to to having that advice at the time. Yeah. So when I get the get the ball, you know, I'm I'm not looking to go off dribbling or, or do anything. I just yeah. looking to play play a safe pass. Occasionally I'll uh, uh, It'll all go to my head and I'll I'll try a long raking pass. If that doesn't come off, then I'll I'll my next pass is a really safe one, a, yeah. a nice short pass, uh, probably sideways or backwards. But I think that's really more around my kind of coping strategy as a as a player and, and influenced by that early development. Yeah. The impact that's had on me as a uh, uh in terms of my coaching philosophy is to is to make sure the kids know you know it's okay to lose the ball yeah you know and uh really it's more emphasizing being comfortable on the ball uh having that calmness uh that that we keep referring back to and just starting off there there's plenty of time to uh uh, to work on that passing and and position and everything but uh Uh, I really want to make sure the people I coach have that uh, comfort on the ball.
1: No, it's interesting, actually, because this is what we can explore. You know, what is the right thing to do? Is it to encourage a bit of individuality? Is it to, like you said, as soon as you get it past it? That's the thing I find the hardest thing when I'm coaching, because obviously you always get the kids who over-dribble Who don't pass it when they should pass it? They don't get their head up, and it's kind of trying to get that balance right between when you should pass, when you should dribble. Because I don't want them to not be individual and express themselves. Because some of them are really good at doing that. But also, it's all the the hardest thing I think is at that age as well is decision making: what to do with the ball, when to do it. And and you can't you can coach it to a certain point, but ultimately they've got to make the decision in their own heads. Right? Have I got a guy who I should pass to? What's the scenario? Have I got a defender in front of me? Is it an angle? Can I drive past him? Can I get past him or not? Should I pass it? And that's what I try and focus on as well. But it's very difficult. And that's probably the hardest thing I'm finding as a coach in my initial level. And that's, again, something that I'm hoping that discussing it with other people, finding a good way,
0: different ways of getting out of them would be uh, be really beneficial. And I'm sure it's the same for you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that decision making is is absolutely the hardest thing even at the top level you see them making making poor decisions at times
1: yeah i mean even those guys yeah even those guys you're screaming at the telly because they're not they get it wrong and it's kind of what well, if they can't get it right there's hope for everybody because you know these are the professionals and are you know you scream at the telly because somebody's not passed and he's had a shot or vice versa it's kind of yeah it's interesting
0: yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I'd I'd really like to explore in the uh in the future podcasts is really how we coach better decision making, uh, particularly under pressure. I mean one of the one of the ways I know that, that we're definitely not gonna do that is by uh you know, coaches and parents both on their on the sidelines, shouting and screaming at the players—you uh, yep. know, with conflicted messages—I think if you're if you're trying to solve problems, that's that's just ramps up the pressure on you. So, how we actually do that in the in the future be uh, be really interesting. Yeah, and you don't get that you don't you don't have that pressure in a training session, whereas it it's
1: a game and you've got you throw in the parents shouting and I you know I I try and ask my parents not to coach, but of course. Some of them can't help themselves and I was the same. I used to find it difficult to not coach my lad when he was playing and I'm not the manager but it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's hard but ultimately it just confuses them because they hear somebody shout at them to do one thing and I might not have asked them to do that and it's kind of, you've almost got to tell them to back off, let them make mistakes, let them learn and you know that's all part of the learning process.
0: Yeah. So So just bringing it back around again to uh, to Alan Hansen and what is it that, that you actually do to uh, uh, to instill that that philosophy into uh, into your teams? Uh, I would say probably the biggest thing that I
1: try, and, and to be fair, the kids are starting to get pretty good at it is go back. You don't always have to pass forward. you can go backwards. It's almost it's almost a taboo thing going backwards. Oh, we've always got to go forward and attack. But our, our boys are getting really good at holding on to it, having a look up. Right, I haven't got a pass on. Is the goalkeeper free? Is there a, anybody near the goalkeeper? No, go back. And we did it a lot in our last game, and I was really pleased with them. And I said I made a point in training on Thursday to say I was really impressed with how often we went back to the goalkeeper. Even if we've gone back to the goalkeeper and he's booted it out for a throw, the point is we had the wherewithal to look behind and see we had a spare man. So rather than just booting the ball long and losing it, let's go back and keep it. Then we pull apart, the two defenders will split and they want the ball back. And it's kind of, you know, that's starting to to work really well. So that's quite an that's quite a big thing for me because it's only a little thing, but it's important to keep the ball and not lose the ball and give it away cheaply. And I think if you can just get them to do that, look up, don't see a pass on, well, let's go back. And I think it works. You know, it just it just enables you to keep the ball better. Um, and I don't know if you if you do that with the girls. I mean, my daughter's girls team are good at that as well. Their their coach encourages them to go back a lot. And I think it's just a simple way of keeping the ball. Do you have you got anything that you do with that or?
0: Yeah, I don't think we're quite at that level yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to be comfortable on the ball. I mean, if you if you've got kids who aren't, then you can't. Obviously, it's difficult to do. Yeah, but. I think that's that's something we that's an aspiration. Uh, some somewhere I want to get to, uh, but we're we're a little bit off there just yet. Uh, with that said, I mean, one of the one of the things that was really pleasing just from this this week gone by. Um, but currently with with, with our team, uh, there is that uh, tendency just to um, not be tremendously calm at the back. Yep. And, and if the ball comes through, if it gets through to the back line, um, you know, try and put your laces through it. And uh, we're trying to coach that out of there out of the, out of yeah, the kids yeah. and, well that's
1: the easy thing to do isn't it just yeah. this
0: weekend you know there was uh there was a situation where it came through and uh we we were really up against a, a very good team who'd, who'd comprehensively beaten us earlier earlier in the year and uh you know we we had a very tough first half and there was something that just switched in the in the second half and the ball came through to uh to one of the back players and we we were 2-0 down after about 5 minutes but during this period in the in the second half the period came through to our kind of left center back and she's very good on the ball but in a in a match situation really wants to um, wants to do the best for the team and and the best for the team is getting the ball down the other end of the pitch and the ball came through to her and I could see the cogwheels turning. Uh, I could see that thought process. So she she was about to to try and get the ball down to the other end of the pitch and she just paused. Had a look around. There was no one. Uh there was no one closing her down. There was there was not a good pass on, so she brought it forward a little bit. The attacker moved to close her down and then she played a lovely pass out to the left wing. Left winger um gets down the pitch, crosses it in and then it was a nice poachers' goal um, at the far post there. So that was absolutely you know fantastic for me um, just to see that and, and just see those good habits um, start to, start to come in because it is a long process um, and you know it's, it's the same for the kids as it, as it is for us. you know it's an easy game to play. it's a difficult game to master.
1: Yeah no absolutely and I think that gives me as much satisfaction seeing a seeing something like that you know a nice passing move involving the team than scoring a goal in some ways because it's what you're trying to get them to do and you see them doing it and getting the good habits and you think yeah great and you get a real buzz from it and that's that's part of the enjoyment for me not just winning or scoring a goal it's seeing that development and seeing them take on board your ideas
0: you think well you know, it's working. What we're trying to do is working bit by bit. Absolutely. So so I think that's a good time to, to wrap it up there. Uh, you've been listening to the Grassroots Coachcast. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at grassrootscoachcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, no underscores, no hyphens. grassrootscoachcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at G Coachcast, and we'd love to hear from you. So if you've got any questions, if you have any comments, then drop us a line. Absolutely, yeah. Please, please feel free to do so. And like we said before, if you're interested in coaching,
1: you know you can even ask us, or you can just go to your local club. But yeah, ask a question, and um, you know I'm sure something could come of it.
0: Okay. Cheers, man.
1: Cheers, Dave.